0: we go with the principles of performance podcast we are on episode number 23 and we have a good one coming up uh but before we tell you all about that i am eric degatti your host along with my co-host mr michael perry mike how are you today
1: you know living the dream we uh we had a half inch of snow last night in boston you would have think it would it was the blizzard of 78 people just forgot how to drive so that's always a a fantastic experience but uh we're doing well man we're doing well
0: that's unique. Usually in Boston, you handle it better than we do here. And I think we actually ended up getting more than you, but we digress. Um, we're, we have an interesting and a, and a great one lined up today because we have uh, a good friend of ours who's actually a co-host uh, with you on another show. So we're being somewhat incestuous on this show here, uh, bringing in our, our, our great friend, Brett Jones. He's, uh, for those of you who don't know who he is, he's a certified athletic trainer, strength and conditioning specialist based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he's got a PA, uh, BS master's in rehabilitative sciences, certified strength and conditioning specialist, been doing this over 20 years, um, and he's consulted with, with teams and athletes all over the world. Uh, he's originally an athletic trainer who transitioned into the fitness industry, and he's Most of you know him for teaching kettlebell techniques, which he's been teaching since 2003, and he's the uh, director of education for Strong First. He's also a teacher with us at Functional Movement Systems. That's how Brett and I first met. He's been there since 06. He's got me beat by a couple years, Uh, and he's created a bunch of DVDs with with the boys, including Gray Cook and the famous Secrets Of series, which is uh, what most people don't know was the – was the genesis for the level two course uh, that we have. And uh, he's also an advisory board member for FMS and helps work on curriculum stuff. And um, it is just awesome to to have him as a, uh, a key component of our industry. And it's a, a blessing to have him as a colleague and a friend, Brett Jones.
2: Eric, uh, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, now that you've set the bar that high, I'm just going to try to slide right underneath it uh as as we get through the uh through the podcast so uh that's it's just great to have a chance to be on and maybe this will be uh funny in some ways i
0: i certainly expect nothing nothing less than that so we'll we'll start the clock now see how long it takes to get totally off the rails (laughs) but perry try to have some semblance of order here and you start off the questions
1: it's brett and i there's not going to be any sense of order whatsoever all right, Brett. So listen, I know all, all the answers to this stuff because I've known Brett for a very, <laughs> very long time. But for our listeners that don't know Brett, so Brett, what was the turning point that drove you to pivot from the tradition uh, traditional athletic? uh sorry, I can't even talk today, traditional athletic training into fitness and, and what you do now?
2: So uh I was uh my first job out of grad school as an athletic trainer was a small military academy and a very small town in uh, Virginia, which the three of us are familiar with, uh, the metropolis of Chatham, uh, Virginia, uh, about 1,200 people. Um, So, uh, but that also happens to be the hometown of Gray Cook. So I'm down there working as as an athletic trainer, and Gray walks into my training room one day, asks if I need any help, and that led to the development of a great friendship and working in his clinics and my training room together and and doing a bunch of stuff, and then... um, I actually, and I, I laugh about this now because I can remember being in one of my freshman athletic training classes with Rick Proctor, who was my uh, my head trainer at High Point University, where I went to get my bachelor's in sports medicine. He's like, look, if you're going to do this, you got to love sports. Well, fast forward uh, six, seven, eight years, and I'm like, I don't like sports. <laughs> <laughs> um, or it was the hundreds uh, thousands of hours that I had watched thus far that made me go, yeah, I just can't watch another practice. Uh, and so I was looking for other opportunities and, and to, to change things up, get back up. My ex uh, lived in, in that area, the new Bethlehem, Clarion area. So I, my transition was basically a job change where I went uh, back to where I had gotten my master's in the Clarion PA area. And I ran a hospital fitness center for, uh, for five years. And in doing that, that's when I got certified with Pavel in 2002. Um, and then, you know, started uh, later in, in right around 2002, I also changed uh, jobs and worked um, from the hospital fitness center to a, a um, private club in Pittsburgh called the Duquesne Club Health and Fitness Center. And um, worked there for a couple of years, then went out to uh, San Diego. Um, so, Short story long, um, it was a job change that uh, took me from athletic training to personal training. And when I transitioned into that hospital fitness center, I was like, man, how do you do this job without being a certified athletic trainer? Because we were transitioning people from, uh, we were based in a PT clinic. So we were transitioning people from, uh, we were doing post-rehab before post-rehab was the thing. So we were transitioning people from the rehab program, physical therapy, into uh, this wellness program. And I was working with orthopedic issues, joint replacements, uh, neurological issues like Parkinson's, stroke, uh, wheelchair bound, amputees, um, everything was coming through the door. And I'm like, man, how do you do this without having, you know, a a much higher level of of education than I like to work out? Um, So that was, that was, yeah, short story long. That's how I made the transition into uh, fitness. All right,
0: so let's pick up with with the kettlebell part of the story because you're you're very well known for your expertise in
2: kettlebells. And so, what kind of originally sparked the interest in in, in that world? Uh, somebody, one of my former employees, somebody that I knew, came back in and said, "Hey, you know, you should you should check out this Pavel guy." And at that point, it was Power to the People, his one of his original books, uh, which was a minimalist strength program, deadlift and side press and um, kind of an anti-bodybuilding message and kind of was, you know, you read the book and especially, you know, I throw myself back to that circa 2000 uh, individual, uh, the year 2000 uh, individual. And I'm like, man, just, you know, mind blown uh, with, with some of the stuff that was in there. And so I, I was I was deadlifting, I was doing my presses, I, you know, I made the shift into uh, focusing on strength. And then he, they came out with the Russian kettlebell challenge book and I bought it. I got it. I read it. I put it in a drawer. Like, I'm like, ah, that's all cool, but I can do this with a dumbbell, throw it, throw it in a drawer. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Scratching at the back of my skull. So I pull it back out and I try one of the, uh, I knew how to do a dumbbell snatch. So I tried to do one of the snatch routines, but with a dumbbell. And I liked a joke and it is a joke that, um, uh, hooked up a 50 pound dumbbell, tried this workout or some that was in the back of the book. And once EMS revived me, I said, well, you know, I should probably go get trained in this, um, which is a joke. There were no emergency services involved. And um, that was kind of the the push that I needed. And then I got my first kettlebell uh, in late 01 and very quickly started to realize that the thick handle offset center of mass really was a different and unique tool. And since getting certified in February of 2, I just haven't looked back. Um, it's been the mainstay of my training for uh, 22 plus years now. So I, I keeping uh, in a
0: little history lesson here, I'd like to, to kind of dive a little bit into the historical stuff, because I know you're big on that. And, and mm-hmm. I kind of geek out on the, the history of strength training. Like one of my favorite books was The Great Sandow, uh, talking about Eugene Sandow, who uh, was a strongman back at the uh, turn of the 20th century. And he would go around before they had movies, they'd go around to do these strongman exhibitions and if you when you see pictures of him in the book he looks like your regular beach bro in terms of his body he wasn't anything magnificent but insanely insanely strong kind of to your point of bodybuilding and and strength not being necessarily the same thing and actually a little tidbit is the trophy for mr olympia is modeled after it's the sandow trophy after using sandow so i know you're really good with the the history stuff uh the kettlebell that was brought in um the trainer from the biggest loser when she introduced that that's how it came to
2: america correct (laughs) if we were in the same room i would reach across the room and smack that right out of your mouth um that's that's good um now, uh, the kettlebell is interesting, has a pretty varied history in the U.S. The current state of kettlebell training is due to Pavel Satsulin, who uh, had, like I said, had gotten started with some other books on flexibility and deadlift and you know things like that. Uh, and then while having some stakes with some friends and talking about kettlebell training, he was encouraged to go ahead and put it out there. Like, let's let's get people doing this. He's like, no, you don't understand. Nobody's going to want to do it. It's really hard work. And, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, here we are uh, 20 plus years later. Kettlebell first appears in the Russian dictionary somewhere in the 1600s. Um, so it's it's been around for a very long time. Um, some of the history that I know of is that uh, originally and uh, they were uh, the weights were given in poods. So one pood, 16 kilo, 1.5 pood, 24 kilo, Uh, two poods 32 kilo um were actually weights that were used for like measuring crops uh measuring where we use bushels and things like that they used poods and so you don't put a group of uh individuals together with a bunch of weights laying around for very long before some sort of uh some sort of competition or look what i can do uh hold my beer watch this uh sort of thing gets started and so you can pull it back even further there's evidence that uh kettlebell like implements have been used for a very long time uh, but then more uh, codified into a form of training in Russia in the 1600s and then you know coming forward into into today so um, it's interesting it's muddied I wish we could draw a straight line but uh, the the kettlebell has apparently taken a, a non-linear path. Uh, But but current state of kettlebell training in in the world right now, largely due to Pavel's influence, bringing it into the mainstream. And um, there is kettlebell sport. There is a contested uh, internationally competed sport of uh, gear voice sport or kettlebell lifting. Um, And so that that's a completely different thing than than what I teach and what I do. Uh, But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting, uh, muddy conversation.
0: Now, fast forwarding to today in the training and in the utilization of kettlebells, um, what do you see as some of the biggest misconceptions, including, uh, is it properly pronounced cattle ball? Correct.
2: It's it's cattle ball or cattle bell uh, also, or uh, kettle ball, or uh, we we get many derivations and and people get upset about that. I don't. Um, If you're interested in the tool and you want to pick it up, Awesome. Call it whatever. Call it Bob. I, I I don't care. We we get it in your hands. Let's start using it. Um, little details about what the name of it is uh, can be fixed later. I think uh, probably a, a, a made a big misconception is that you it's not um, an ideal tool for building strength. Uh, it's seen more as a metcon tool or a conditioning tool, uh, but I think it's a tremendous power. Uh, and strength tool. And um, so I, I think that opening the doors a little bit to the benefits and what you can get out of kettlebell training um, is probably you, know, where it would need to go because you know, honestly, you mentioned um, uh, she who shall not be named and the previous uh, show that shall not be named. And um, you know, this you see some of these applications of this tool, and you're like, man, I would never touch one of those. I agree. If that was what I had seen for for kettlebell training, I wouldn't want to touch it either. Um, you know, get to a, a good instructor, a strong first instructor that can show you how to access this tool in a very safe manner, um, and begin to realize that, as I said initially, that thick handle, offset center of gravity, it's unique. And the loaded eccentric position that we get into is unique. Um, and I think that those are, um, areas where there's tremendous benefit.
1: All right. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. So we often talk about the difference between being good at an exercise and being strong. So Brett, how would you define strength in general and describe what you see are are good quality expressions or gauges of true physical strength?
2: Um, well, I, I think it's an interesting conversation because the, um, if we were talking about, um, basketball, you know, he's, he's not a good free throw shooter. He just has good technique. Like that that doesn't make sense, right? He's not a good golfer. He just has good technique. Well, he's not that strong. He just has good technique. No strength is good technique. Like it, it those two things are married in, in, in a way that we don't separate for other activities, but yet, um, and, and it could be, um, you know, self-esteem or uh, uh, some personally driven issues where we're trying to give ourselves an excuse for not being as strong as we could be and saying, that, oh, he's not that strong. He just has good technique. That doesn't apply to any other sporting analogy that you put it to. And so realizing that uh, technique is a display of strength and strength can be a display of technique. Those two things should be married, not, not separated. Um, if you go a little more textbook uh, strength is your ability to generate force under given conditions. Uh, whether that's an internal load where we're doing something like a one arm push up, or whether that's manipulating an external load. It is your ability to generate force under given conditions. Um, strength is a many splendored thing. Uh, the the ballet dancer that's on stage doing things that I would break if if I if I tried to do, the the NFL football player, the strongman competitor, the you know, the youth athlete, uh, all of these are um, displays of strength in in, a, in many different ways. So, defining strength in in, in a broader sense, um, I think is is a, is a more useful uh, conversation.
0: So let's, let's throw a word out there. That's been bastardized to the Hill. Uh, and it's, it's part of one, a company that we all work for is functional, right. And talk about functional strength is, you know, strength coaches will say, well, you're, you know, uh, you're just good at bench squat, clean or bench squat and deadlift. And, there is a component of we had John Terrin on um, last week and we were talking about, you know, the, he took all the record boards because the guys who were the best at those lifts weren't the best on the field. So in terms of strength that actually carries over, like the way I describe it in our course, as I say, if you work out all the time, but you still can't help me move a couch, your program sucks. So wh- what does functional strength mean to to you?
2: What you, you kind of tiptoed on it there. Um, it is your ability to be useful <laughs> in a variety <laughs> of ways. Um, I, I think that, and, and we're talking about transfer here, right? So um, we can, um, and yeah, it, my brain's going about five different directions right now in background processing. Oh, let's words. go to all of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's, that, I don't know that you want to do that. Um, but I, I think that we're talking about transfer. We're talking about the ability of you being stronger to make you better at a variety of things. And, um, just a quick example, when I went to my original, uh, certification in February of '02 2 um, and learned how to kind of unlock my hips and produce power the way we do in the swing. Um, I went from barely touching the bottom of the net to being able to, to grab the rim, Uh, So my vertical leap saw a many inch increase in moments because I learned how to unlock my hips and I learned how to use my hips in a a more useful fashion. My max squat at that point was about 365. Um, Fast forward a few years when I'm powerlifting and uh, I have a max squat in competition belt only of 518. um, And I'm back to just getting the bottom of the net yeah, you know, i I did not have the hops that I had uh, at at that particular event. So is there a point of getting too focused on strength? Yes, that is at a very elite level for most people. for in general, if you're stronger, you're gooder. Um, and that is um, until proven otherwise, I would argue that getting stronger can can make a good difference. But when you get super focused on some um, very locked into certain pattern lifts, um, bench squat dead being good, good examples, um, you know, the, having something that transfers that strength into a more usable uh, fashion is always needed. Um, And sometimes it's, you gotta, you gotta pull the person back and say, look, um, and, and this is the the brilliance of having a baseline or having something like the FMS, the FCS and and having your minimums in place, like, dude, you are way over the minimum for this position, for this sport. Let's focus on something else. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, we, we just got to have some metrics that tell us we've gone too far in one direction. We need to change, change course.
0: I think an important take home with that is it's not an either or you know, jump and dive into the cesspool of, of Twitter. And, and, you know, like I say, you know, if you want to waste an hour, take 10 minutes on Twitter. Um, and you'll hear the arguments of it's, you know, it's all strength and it's barbells and nothing else, or it's, you know, don't touch barbells and it's all functional and, and that kind of thing. And it's like, why do you have to shoot? I don't understand why it has to be this, these polar sides of it, where really you can kind of contrast both and they all fit in. And I think that's circling back to the misconceptions of kettlebells is we do something in the course where we talk about kind of, you know, what's your thing and getting out of your silos. And we, we will sometimes pull somebody from the course up from a kettle who's a kettlebell person, quote unquote, and say, OK, everybody before he tells you or she tells you what they actually do, someone who's not familiar with kettlebells, tell us what you think they do. Right. And mm-hmm. what that stereotype of what that is of, oh, well, it's just, you know, um, a bunch of, you know, kind of hipsters with beards and man buns and Patagonians. And all they do is, uh, you know, swing kettlebells and get ups and they don't do any other exercises. Um, it couldn't be further from the truth. Like, even within your curriculum, you have body weight training, you have barbell training, kind of talk about the diversity. And where it's just a part of a, and there's really more concepts that really, that, that has been my big takeaways from stuff I've learned from Pavel
2: and principles than it is just the device. Absolutely. The, the high tension techniques, the, the way we teach people to be stronger transfers to any tool. Uh, I, I don't care what you're lifting, uh, sandbag, kettlebell, barbell, body weight. I, I don't care. Uh, the principles, the techniques transfer. And, and that's really key. Um, now if you want to specialize, you want, you want to compete in powerlifting. Okay. Now we're going to specialize. There's some things we're going to learn. There's some things we're going to do that aren't going to transfer, um, knowing how to set your arch and, and max out your, uh, your bench is not necessarily the the best activity for transference to to athletic skills. It's specific to maxing out the bench for a, for a powerlifting purpose. So, um, for, for me, like I, I don't, I kind of don't worry about transfer because I know that the the things I've learned how to use my body better by applying some of these tension techniques, relaxation techniques, I know it makes me more effective at anything that I want to do. Um, so it is opening up those doors and saying, you know, this is, this is a principle that you can take to any place you want to go. Um, and that was, you know, when Pavel wrote the book, The Naked Warrior, uh, years ago, the concept was you should be able to drop me. Uh, any place on the globe uh, with no equipment and I should be able to keep myself fit, keep myself together. Um, the the actual quote was from a, a spec ops person about, you know, drop me naked in the jungle and I should still be able to make my way out uh, and and be successful. I'd be happier with my K bar and my Glock and, and my flak jacket, but I can still make it if you drop me in, you know, naked and, and uh, with, with no equipment. Um, so it is, learning how to use yourself better. Um, if we can talk about it in that fashion. Got it. Do you want to insert your
0: naked joke here, Perry? I can see you snickering like a fifth grader over there.
1: No, uh, honestly, it's it's more like a, actually like a second or third grader. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going with it. I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm just rolling with it right now. I'm just waiting. I'm, I'm patiently waiting for my turn.
0: He's that sniper's laying in the weeds. So just be ready, Jones. Um, So <laughs> let's take a step back and, and look at the most fundamental aspect of training. Like when I tell, when I t- introduce myself to people on day one, I say, all right, let's take a step back and talk about how this whole thing works. It's basically, you're going to do something, your body's going to go, I don't know what the hell you just did, but if you're going to keep doing that, I have to get better at it. So if you lift heavy things, you're going to have to build the neurological adaptations and maybe even build some muscle to do it again. If you're going to go out and run, you're going to have to build a cardiovascular adaptation. So it's a stress and response cycle. So, you know, we've talked about this and I think you're really good at kind of dialing in what kind of creates these adaptations from mechanical to neurological to,
2: to metabolic and kind of what's happening and, and, and why it's happening. Yeah, I think that, uh, and this was actually a recent conversation I had with a group of, um, graduating or senior, uh, people at a senior level in, um, uh, exercise science program at a particular university, which shall remain unnamed. And, uh, you know, they, like we're almost kind of fighting against this idea of you need to understand the mechanical, neurological, and metabolic adaptations. Well, start with why. Why Why am I doing this? And, and I, I've said this for years at, at FMS workshops, Strong First workshops. If I walk into your training facility and I see you working with somebody and I say, why are you doing that, that exercise, that routine on the bike, that whatever it is, if I walk in and say, why are you doing that? And you're like, um, that's a problem. Like, why are you doing it? And when you break down the why from a training standpoint, if I am choosing to do a kettlebell swing protocol where I am hitting five powerful reps at the top of each minute, well, there's a specific from a neurological standpoint, I know that I'm working more uh, power and efficiency and power within that uh, particular hip hinge activity um, from a metabolic standpoint, I know that I'm practicing kind of an anti-glycolytic, um, aerobic sort of protocol where I'm stimulating, uh, from a metabolic standpoint, I'm stimulating this energy use and energy production, uh, but then giving myself plenty of time to recover and, and, um, fulfill, uh, replenish that so that the next set is just as powerful. And from a mechanical standpoint, I know that because I'm choosing a more athletic style hinge, I'm getting um, a better contribution from glutes, quads, and hamstrings, uh, whereas in some of the research, you can look at uh, the idea that if I go with a more RDL-style hinge, I would be getting a little more hamstring activity and maybe not as much quad or glute uh, activation, and show me the athlete if it's acl prevention or post acl um uh, if if it's an intervention post acl injury or surgery maybe targeting the hamstrings because uh and and medial hamstring uh is seen to be very important in acl prevention uh or mitigation uh strategies um careful using the word prevention um and so yeah I, i think you should be able to very quickly go down uh the list and say okay this is the exercise I'm going to do. Cool. That can lead us in the direction of saying these are the mechanical responses that I'm looking for. This is going to be my work to rest ratio. That's going to lead us more in the direction of the uh, metabolic um, uh, sort of adaptations. And then from a neurological standpoint, I should know whether I'm working more uh, strength, power, um, or that blend of strength and power, which we sometimes call strength endurance.
0: So now you're, you're kind of sharpshooting for this specific response and, and you know, in uh, exercise science, we call that that said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand. And so the one thing that kind of flies in the face of that a little bit is I know in Strong First and, and you and Pavel talk about something called the what the hell effect is and, and kind of
2: explain what that means and, and how that actually can be applied. Yeah, the broadest strokes that I can put that under is uh, you do swings and get-ups for a while, and then you have not been training pull-ups, but yet you come back and PR your pull-ups. You've added two, three, four, five reps to your pull-ups, and you haven't been training them. That's the the what-the-heck effect. Uh, Our former CEO and uh, former SEAL, Eric Frohart, talks about the fact that he went on deployment um, walking around very sandy places. Uh, with, uh, and all he had to train with, uh, that, that he had brought in his kid at that time was a 24 kilo kettlebell and he was doing the rite of passage, which is a lot of presses, a lot of snatches. Um, and that, that was his training because he, the focus was stay fit to do the nighttime walks and, uh, activities that they were involved in, uh, at that time and be fresh enough to go do that um, and, and, and be an effective operator. Yet he comes home, he PRs his pull-ups, he PRs like bench, which he hasn't been training at all. And it's like, what the heck? And yeah, what the heck? Um, I, I wish I had a more scientific explanation. Now, what I feel is that the, again, coming back to these principles and these techniques that transfer to any tool, that if you're better at using yourself, uh, applying these strategies and high tension techniques with yourself and towards other objects, you're better at doing it with anything that's in your hands. Um, and I think that the unique loaded eccentric that we get into uh, has a carryover that is just far beyond um, what we would traditionally consider. Uh, we, we usually think very specific in our in our adaptations And it's interesting just to break it down a little bit. When we look at GPP, in the States, GPP's like been boiled down to be METCONs and conditioning. Well, you look at the traditional Russian systems, uh, GPP's everything. It's flexibility, mobility, strength, power. uh, Everything is GPP. Then you get into SPP where if that, those are your special physical preparations and that's where you're going to be working on a specific sports skill. Um I could be training a pitcher. And by the time I'm doing something that's specific for throwing, that's SPP um, for, for that person, everything else is GPP. And then there's, there's SPP too, but uh, that's uh, uber specialized. And now we're talking about shifting the grip slightly on a, on a pitch to, to change uh, how it's delivered. Um, so I, I think that, uh, when you look at that GPP and you open the door to say, okay, it's not just conditioning. It's, it's everything. Um, then something like a kettlebell swing where I feel it's a tremendous power drill, uh, because I know from an eccentric loading standpoint, two handed swing, 24 kilo bell, I'm producing three to three and a half times my body weight eccentric load at the bottom of that swing. That's a 53 pound weight giving me three times my body weight load at the bottom of that movement. Cause I know how to do a little bit of an over, over speedy centric and load that position. Uh, that's going to have carry both from a strength standpoint and a power standpoint. And then depending on my work rest ratios, it's going to give me a conditioning benefit uh, as well. Cause I'm getting metabolic adaptations. So I, I think it's um, maybe the door swung too far in the direction of specificity um, and you have to be doing exactly what you want to be good at. Well, that's assuming that your GPP has been kind of maxed out. Um, If your GPP hasn't been maxed out, then yeah, getting stronger makes you better at everything else. Um, So yeah.
0: Hey everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guest every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. I, I want to chime in with, with two things off of that. The one, just a, a quick story, as I had a high school coach, a football coach, uh, when he, I was consulting with the with program and I uh, gave him his, his initial program and he looked at it and he scans through and, and there's no cleans on there. And you would have thought I t- stole his firstborn, um, And he's freaking out and he's like, we have no cleans. It's a it's a quote unquote football lift. We need this. And so I said, I don't think you do. And I said, I don't think you have the um, ability to implement and coach it well enough that you're going to get benefit and there's just too much risk. Uh, At least that's what I see at the high school level when it's being implemented by a non-trained strength coach. And so I said, here's what you want to do. If you really want the cleans, I'll make a bet with you. You can test their clean. But I said, you're not going to clean. And then we're going to come back. You can retest it when we retest and he calls me, you know, six weeks later to the day and, and he's, he's jumping through the phone and he's saying all our, all our maxes went up through the roof and he goes but guess what went up the most and I go you don't have to tell me You're <laughs> cleans right and I, he said yeah and he goes how did that happen. He said well just we did that and we saved a lot of wrists and a lot of low backs from high school kids just jumping and curling way more than they should. And they actually got what we wanted to, which is hip explosiveness. Now, here's the here's the next thing on, on programming. Something you just said kind of tipped off a project that Mike and I are working on. I'm working on a bonus chapter for our course and kind of building an algorithm, almost like the SFMA algorithm, but for programming. And the they, when I stood there kind of just staring at the whiteboard for an hour or so, trying to figure out how to do this, the the realization that came into my head is that For 90% of the people, it's just GPP, right? So kind of like, Mike, if you want to chime in or you guys, I want to just kind of pull the pin on that grenade and roll into the door. Like most people are are trying to, you know, dazzle you with specific work to your point, Brett, but 90% of the people just need GPP. Yeah, Mike. Mike.
1: I agree. No, I'm just kidding.
0: Um, well, I do agree, <laughs> yes. but um, you know, they don't so, call him the best color man in the business for nothing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, but, but so, so, you know what this, this kind of takes me to is I think this, when we talk about GPP, I think that's what CrossFit could have been, right? So you you think about a lot of the Olympic lifts that were brought into the world of CrossFit, right? And, and whether you like, <laughs> pardon me, whether you like CrossFit or not, they did bring barbells to the masses. They did bring, um, Olympic lifts, powerlifting, And, uh, the only thing I disagree with is the way that they were programmed. But I mean, if you kind of look at it, it was kind of a GPP type program, um, where they had you doing a bunch of just different things. And again, I, I, didn't agree necessarily with the way that it was originally programmed, but the thing that I liked did like about it is they had you running some days, they had you rowing, they had you, uh, you know, doing jump ropes, they had you doing body weight stuff. And really what, what everybody needs is that good GPP thing. And, uh, I think the biggest issue is people think that they're special so that they need something special for them. And, and I tell people all the time, like if you want sports specific training, cool, like, you know, do do this ladder drill once with the hockey stick in your hand. And now we're doing sports specific, right. It's the same (laughs) damn drill, but, but like, sometimes you have to actually just give people, um, kind of a little bit of what they want, but I mean, it is, I look at, honestly, I look at the guys that I work with, some of the best fighters in the UFC it's, at a certain point, it's just really good GPP because their SPP is their sport. So I don't need to get them better at Olympic lifts. Now, if I'm looking for a specific adaptation, could I use Olympic lifts? Absolutely. But, um, I think people, you know, I think people think that they're just light years ahead of of what they truly are. And they want to think that they deserve or that they're capable much more because, I mean, general physical preparedness, right? Like that's kind of a boring name, right? You know, we, we want the, the, the butt kicking Metcons and the, this and the, that, and, you know, pukey the clown and I'm special, so I need to be doing snatches. And I just, uh, you know, I, I think it, it comes down to ego. And I think that I, you know, the, the modern fitness industry is one of the biggest, uh, reasons why people think that they're a little bit better than they are because they think they can skip steps and go to the fancy stuff so um i'm a gpp guy that's all i need Uh, you know i work with a bunch of people that get paid with their body they're gpp guys and their sport is their spp so um well i think we just all got to get better at gpp
0: (laughs) yeah one thing that I, i would ask you uh jones is is I, I really love how, you know, we there's there's these progressions within the stuff that I've learned from Pavel is that you have to kind of earn your, it's almost like martial arts. You have to kind of earn your belts. And I've kind of mm-hmm. stolen some of that in my program, especially when I'm working with high school kids is that we start off with some certain things that are um, ratios to body weight that I've kind of had this collection that I've they put together uh, from between Dan John and Joe DeFranco and Chad Waterbury of these uh, and Poliquin of these are some of the things you should be able to do. You should be able to do a a, a reverse lunge with half your body weight in your hand. You should be able to do a 60-second straight arm hang and then go to a 30-second bent arm hang before we start really implementing pull-ups. Just some general guardrails to say, look, I, I have no problem with you doing chin-ups. Pass these tests. I have no problem with you bench pressing. Do this first. So tell me, let's talk a little bit about, before we jump into the conditioning stuff, talk about some of those guardrails and some of those progressions like, it's not that I don't like you or I don't like this lift. It's you need to do this first before I allow you to do this.
2: Yeah. And uh, I'm going to circle back real quick on on the the kind of GPP conversation because the the oxymoronic thing that, that and I love oxymoronics. Anytime I can run into an oxymoronic, I'm going to use it. Um, we're all unique snowflakes, but we need general programming. And so there's individual, there's individualization that occurs. Uh, You mentioned, Mike, you know, you're, you're not above, you know, giving the person what they want. Well, I'm not above subterfusion and, uh, and deception either Uh, at my age, it's all I've got. Uh, So the, uh, the idea that I'm going to put the broccoli in the fruit smoothie to get you to do, you know, eat your veggies so that, you know, you'll, you'll enjoy it. I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. So we're going to individualize, but we're going to be generic. And the reason that dichotomy or that that oxymoronic thing can exist is the elite are just better at the basics than everybody else. That's a quote that we drew from a, a spec ops person. And so um, when you think you're good enough at a lift, you're not. Um, I've been swinging a kettlebell for over 20 years. I'm still trying to get better at swinging a kettlebell. I've, I've pressed a kettlebell a few times. I'm still trying to get better at pressing a kettlebell. So the the that that kind of dichotomy between individualization and generalization, um, there are ways that that plays very well uh, when you're going with a GPP or a, a general approach. Um, the um, the the standards that you're talking about. Um, if you want to do X, I need Y. Um, if I want you to swing a particular bell, I think you should be able to deadlift two times that. Because like we talked about, you're going to get in some significant eccentric load. Um, and that as a starting point, once you've started, the rules change, right? We're, we're talking about just kind of entrance standards, not a more experienced uh, individual. Um, if you want to press something, I think you should be able to do a get up with it. Like, I, I have some pretty simple uh, metrics uh, that that tell me um, if, if you can't... Uh, yeah. um yeah if you if you can't do a get up with this weight why are you trying to press it because you should be able to support way more than your movement um uh bottoms up press versus military press you should be within 50 to 60 percent of your max military press with a bottoms up press and when you fall below that metric you're probably uh your strength ability is outgunning your stability ability and that's going to lead to some problems as you try to max that lift out. So for, for me, it's it's obviously very kettlebell-based since I haven't mentioned anything else. Um, uh, but um and, and it's interesting because you know some coaches will say, well, you need to be able to do X number of push-ups before you can do this. Well, I can get you dumbbell benching very light and 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 build a lot of strength uh before you can ever really do good push-ups, because the push-up can be, as we know, complicated for many factors. Uh, but I can get you dumbbell bench pressing uh, at a lightweight and and build that pattern in a different way. Um, so you know, show me the person, show me what their goals are, th- then I'll give you some some benchmarks and baselines. But having some benchmarks and baselines and being able to say,, um, you know, pass this test and then we proceed into that. like I, I like your, you know, your dead hang and flexed arm hang before we really start getting into pull-ups and that's what you see from people that skip steps. And this is, this is where gray says, I might skip steps, but I don't miss steps. And that's a very important distinction. Um, I, I may run into an individual where I can skip some of my baselines because they've already achieved X or I, I see that they're more advanced than, than their training age would, uh, would, would indicate, uh, but don't skip steps. Um, that's, That's an important distinction.
1: You know, is one thing that I I always think about when it comes to sort of this rite of passage. And and yes, I use that that phrase on purpose because that was one of Powell's original programs. But, you know, I think what happens with a lot of people when it comes to strength training is, you know, a lot of people, they get fired or they get fired up, right? They take their, their, their dry scoop of pre-workout and they've got all the stimulants in their body and they got their ammonia capsules and they crank out like a huge deadlift, but that's not a repeatable deadlift for them, right? That is just something that they got themselves completely fired up via a bunch of chemicals. And they think because they hit that deadlift on that specific day that that's their new sort of, you know, that that's the way they should base everything off of it. And I think that's what people do. They don't take the necessary steps. Like right now, I could put on a decent amount of weight and crank out a deadlift it wouldn't look good. And I probably would be regretting it tomorrow. But yeah, I always think about what could you, what could you perform on like an average day? And, and I think that's where people need to start thinking about what, you know, what they should be doing when it comes to their strength and conditioning, because everybody feels good on a good day. Right. Everybody's like, I'm, you know, I'm killing it. The weights are moving. And yes, that might be a day based off of everything else that you may want to push it a little bit more. But, um, I still think we need those necessary steps. And I, and, and Brett, we've talked about sort of the lost art of progression and just taking your time to build up. Right. And, um, and, and I have to remind my, my fighters about this too. And we design their conditioning programs and we do their conditioning assessment. Mike, remember everything that we're going to do for the next six weeks is based off this assessment. So if you absolutely murder yourself to the point where you're throwing up and you can't do anything for the next two hours, it's going to be a long six months. And if I asked you to do this tomorrow, could you do it again? So there are, um, you know, a few things that we need to to consider when it comes to um, the overall idea of, uh, you know, a rite of passage and taking necessary steps. But um, we're we're talking about conditioning a little bit here, and uh, you know, Brett, I I know you're obviously.
2: For just a second, because Absolutely. I, I think there's some there's a couple of important things there. Um, the journey's greater than the destination. When you're talking about strength training, it is what you what you develop, what you learn uh, in the process, not that end lift. I, I can put you on an eight week program, and I don't care if you test out at the end. Um, yeah, it can be a good proof of concept. Yes, it can It can prove that we've, we've gotten stronger, but what you should have learned, developed and gained in that journey is more important than that new PR. Um, when you look at Westside Barbell and uh, obviously a very successful system, um, they had a max effort day. Well, what few people talk about as far as the max effort day is that max effort was to be done with zero psyching zero uh getting fired up for the lift you were supposed to walk up to the bar hit the lift and walk away not bang your head on it and sniff your smelling salts and you know do do the things that you you were talking about um it's it's a very workman or um manual labor sort of mindset and if if you've done manual labor and you know you have a 10-hour day of sling and gravel in front of you you approach it differently than if you're saying somebody says, well, how much gravel can you sling in two minutes? Well, to your point of the, the the conditioning test where the person's puking and unable to do anything for two hours. Yeah, you hit that metric. But God, if we train you like that, you're going to just die. Um, so I, I think if people would embrace the journey as being more important than the destination, uh, I think strength training would look a lot different, and more people would be happy with it. Um, so then, yes, conditioning.
0: Well, to, to your point, Brett, I remember, I think it was in Verka Shansky's book, uh, talking about Eastern block training, when, when the old Soviet lifters, they would keep heart rate m- monitors on them. And if they got too amped up to do a lift in, in, in their practice and in their, in their, their workouts, they'd pull them off the lift, because they knew even if they hit that mark, it was going to set them back in all their training for the rest of that week, and they had things period, periodized out
2: for four years to peak on one day. I don't really care if you peak today. Yeah, uh, there was an interesting study that came out recently. I don't, I don't know if I sent, I sent it to you, but it, it was um, three sets of eight with um, like a five minute rest in between um, sets, um, six sets of four, so volume equated intensity equated both at 75 70 or 75 percent. the only thing that changed was the density was the work rest ratios Uh, three sets of eight with like a five minute rest six sets of four with a two minute rest six sets of four with a two minute rest was better from a neurological metabolic and mechanical standpoint because recovery was much better and this actually lines up with a lot of velocity-based research, where you stop your sets when you um, you drop, you know, ten percent of velocity in a, in a power-based and twenty percent velocity in a strength-based uh, activity, and also for some reason, sets of four comes up again within that velocity-based research. Um, so the, this idea of pushing uh, and maxing out, and and you know, you want to you know, you're trained to failure. I was a I'm a recovered hit Jedi. Uh, who used to think one set to failure was the secret to the universe. Um, God, how wrong we were. Um, but I, I think that um, that, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, I think that piece of research is really interesting uh, because of what you see from a recovery standpoint. And that's what you were seeing in the velocity-based research as well, is when they when they held to those metrics, those sets of four and those velocity drops, Um, those people are ready to train again in 24 hours. Uh, the other people took 72 or hours or more before they were fully recovered to your point of the Verikashansky thing with the, with the heart rate, where if you're too amped up and you get that adrenaline dump and you're operating at that next level, that's not a, that's a, you just PR, uh, it's not a training effect. It's a, it, it, it has more than that. That's awesome stuff. The only problem with that is what strength coach uses
0: fours? You're allowed. I only knew, I only thought we were allowed to use one, three, five, maybe eight or six or 10. I like seven programs.
1: Guy. I use sevens and fours you, all the time just to get people upset.
0: Fours yeah, and yeah. sevens for
1: in 11s. People love it how
0: many, how many times did you get? Do, do they come with their chart saying, is this a mistake? Yeah.
1: I, nope. Four. You're going to love it. You're um, going to love it. Yeah, exactly. Anywho, let's talk about conditioning a little bit. So, Brett's talking about strength, strength, strength. I think you like strength training. Um, but I think a lot of people forget about the conditioning component. And you touched on it a little bit earlier with uh some of the sort of anti-glycolytic stuff. But um, so tell us uh how you sort of see the strength and the conditioning stuff working together. And what do you think about when you're designing a traditional training program? Now, we're going to talk about sort of your your other kettlebell stuff in a bit, but humor us for a little bit, Brett, because I know you uh, <laughs> you love talking chop shop on that stuff.
2: Well, uh, you're alluding to the Iron Cardio program, I believe. Um, what do you know? I'm just saying. What? Just, uh, just... Who? Um, I think that uh, it's, it's the water's gotten really muddy. Um, there are things where you want to approach strength training as your strength training practice and you want to approach conditioning as a conditioning practice. Um, and you know, that sort of when we look at cardiovascular adaptations, when we look at metabolic adaptations where things get really confusing when you try to use strength training, uh, sets of eight, uh, in a particular lift in a circuit, uh, as a form of, achieving your conditioning there's there's some issues um now you can look at the research there's research that says circuit training and doing these things has great aerobic anaerobic benefits and and strength training benefits and everything like that the issue is when you generate tension you restrict blood supply you, you can't pump blood into a contracted muscle or, or if you do it's very little um, and the volume load and pressure load that you get into from a cardiovascular standpoint when you're within that set uh, means that you're not doing a really good job of getting your cardiovascular adaptations. Now, Pavel's been good to, pr- to point out that there's peripheral adaptations in capitalization and uh, metabolic benefits with the mitochondria and different things like that, where we're, that's probably where we're getting the benefit in the circuit training, not just the pure cardiovascular uh, standpoint. So again, it comes back to why. Why are we doing this? And what are you trying to get conditioned for? And where where are your metrics? Like what's what's telling you that you need to use a particular protocol or you're trying to get somebody fit for whatever it is? Um, so the the conditioning conversation still needs to come back to why and, and then look at what tool are we going to choose that's going to be best for that. Um, now, I tend to think if we look at something like kettlebell swings or snatches, um, or jerks. Um, we see something that um, is strengthish, powerish, and conditioning ish. Uh, and in that ish lives uh, a pretty darn effective tool uh, if work rest ratios are are set out uh, appropriately. Um, there's also a toggling between tension and relaxation within those. So we get a different blood uh, response, got different cardiovascular response by by using those. I don't know if I answered your question, but I felt good saying it.
1: You is hey, as long as you're feeling good, that's all we care about. <laughs> that's that's at the end of the day, this is really about you and your needs. Why? So thank you. We're, we're we're good to go.
0: <laughs> Shipshape. So uh, you happen to mention Iron Cardio, and yep. uh, that is your your newest project. Kind of tell us what that is. And if I follow that, will I become a Adonis like you?
2: 100%. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's guaranteed. Read the fine print. Um, now, so in this was an, an article that Pavel and Alexei Sinart put out back in 2014 uh, called Strength Aerobics. And the idea in that article was take a 10-RM military press kettlebell and clean it, press it, squat it, set it down, shake it off, do the other side. And go for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just kind of enjoy this kind of uh, practice and um, using those lifts with with kettlebone. I'd been using some form of strength aerobics for really since that article came out because it just kind of appealed to me. Um, and I, I enjoyed doing it. I would go a little bit heavier, but, you know, that's because I'm a meathead. And so post-cancer treatment, when I was coming back to training, uh, I started with some body weight work and then tried to get back into my swings and get-ups. And what I realized was I wasn't strong enough to really hit the ballistics. Um, or as I like to joke, I was strong enough to hurt myself because I, I know how to generate some tension, uh, but my tissues were not ready for that sort of load. And so it was back to this strength aerobics protocol. Well, what started happening is I had about you know, 30, 40 different variations that I had come up with. Uh, to give you an example, I'd did a workout the other day and I had to go back six months to find where I had to repeated that exact session. Um, so there's, and I've been training pretty consistently. So there's a lot of variation that's possible within this, within this routine. So what I started to develop was this kind of iron, iron cardio protocol where it's, um, it's consistently variable coming back to one of my favorite oxymoronics. Um, and so we're, we're really training, a. a, a a small list of, uh, uh, exercises, cleans, presses, squats, snatches. Uh, but we're doing it in a cons- kind of a constantly varied way where I'm manipulating the, the variables. The sets need to be short, uh, coming back to the conversation on, you know, using strength training as a cardiovascular, uh, sort of adaptation and the iron cardio name is, is, I don't know, call it clickbait if you want. Um, I'm, not, I'm not so concerned with the pure cardiovascular adaptations, um, but the fact that we're cycling from a, a ballistic to a grind, uh, to a, from an upper body grind to a lower body grind, and I'm keeping my breathing pattern going, I think we avoid a lot of those uh, fears and, and a lot of those issues with the using strength training for cardiovascular adaptations. Then if I'm using my work-rest ratios right, Uh, and uh, hitting my relaxation drills in between to return blood flow and help move metabolic waste and things like that, um, then I'm getting some pretty good conditioning uh, effects as well. So short story long, it's helped me go from struggling with a 24 kilo for 20 sets to using a 36 and 40 kilo for 60 sets, Uh, 36 kilo for 60 sets and the 40 I've hit for about 30 sets. Um, So you know that that sort of um progression I built a lot of strength. Um I went from the low post cancer treatment was about 164 uh body weight. I lost over 40 pounds uh in the course of treatment. I'm back up around 190. Um and um feeling, you know, strong and uh and capable. And it's it's been a lot of work on that protocol.
0: Awesome. And then for, for the person who's using it, kind of going to it, like in terms of what to expect, is this something that I'm looking at using a heart rate monitor for? Is this something that I can customize, you know, based on my goal or based on my time and availability to kind of tell us a little bit about what, what someone needs to do to prep to to best get the the, the best effects out of this?
2: So I'm, I'm a minimalist. Uh, I collect almost zero data. And if it wasn't for the little notebook that I use to make my little tick marks, I, I wouldn't have any records um, as, as far as what I'm doing with my training. Um, I do have people that have used a heart rate monitor as, as a means of, of saying I'm ready for my next set. Um, I, I get along without it uh, using the talk test and using my uh, feeling on RPE and my ability to hit the next press because I do go heavier. Uh, in in my um, iron cardio work, the original recommendation was a 10 RM bell. I'm probably centered around a five or six RM bell, and sometimes even a three RM or heavier bell. Um, I have no clue how many times I could press a 40, or I don't even know if I can press the 44. Probably could, but I can do the 40 kilo within a weight ladder. I can get 20 to 25 sets in with with a 40 kilo. Um, so my ability to hit the next press and know from an RPE standpoint that that press is in the bag, never going to failure. Um, that, that's an important metric for me. Just, uh, looking at between set recovery time-wise, what, what do you got time for? You got 20 minutes. Cool. It works. You got time to go for an hour. It it works. Like what, what do you ask not what iron cardio can do for you? Um, so, <laughs> um, but that it, it is an extremely adaptable uh, routine to uh, whatever you have going on. I'm I'm a very intuitive trainer. Um, Train I should say I'm a very intuitive trainee. Uh, being how I program myself is I look at my notebook and go, what do I want to do today? And I make up a variation. Um, something will click in my head where I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds good for today um and there's times where i'm like yeah that wasn't a good idea and there's times where i'm like god that was perfect like that what a great session um so yeah it's it's extremely adaptable.
0: to your point perry in the course you talk about the baker and the cook and brett is definitely the, the the chef and the cook not the baker in that situation perry any closing thoughts before we wrap this thing up
1: no brett it's always good to chat with you buddy thank you for sharing we appreciate you and uh, I was going to say something snarky and and relatively funny, but we'll save that for a later date. Oh, you
2: disappoint me. <laughs> no, it, it's Wouldn't fantastic. Be the first time. <laughs> True story. Uh, it, it's great to have a chance to be on with you guys. Uh, love what you're doing with the principles program design, and um, look forward to everything that you guys are putting out. And uh, honored to uh, have a chance to be on the show. Thank you.
0: No, absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity. And I, I would be um, remiss if I didn't also talk about, you know, we have a a, a podcast here talking about strength and I brought this up before. And, but uh, cause we had uh, Gwen Lawrence on who's the yoga instructor works with a bunch of teams. She was with me with the giants and uh, she's also a cancer survivor. So we have two guys here who've part of a club that I hope to never be part of, but I am in completely in awe of, and we talk about real strength is not lifting a kettlebell or barbell. It's what these two guys have done and, and shown in and, and kind of leading people through their journey and being an inspiration. So both of you guys are absolute rock stars and heroes to me on that end. So um I am honored to to call you colleagues and friends and it is always a good time when we get together. Hopefully we can do it in person sometime soon. Um, But we want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you, Mr. Jones. And if you just can't get enough of, of these two sexy bald men, they also have a podcast. Do you want to give a quick plug here terry uh, there perry terry whatever your name is
1: <laughs> uh terry my name is my name is terry and i have a podcast it's, it's called terry terry and brett's podcast it's it's an amazing podcast we we talk with a lot of people that rhyme with terry it's fantastic um actually it's called the minimum effective dose podcast and you can listen to brett and i ramble about sometimes training but a lot of the times it does it does end up with movie quotes and and uh you know, a bunch of sarcasm, but no, a uh, minimum effective dose. You can find that just about everywhere.
0: Fantastic. Definitely.
1: And, and with that, we will, we
0: will, uh, wrap things up here for episode number 23 of the principles of performance podcast. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the principles of performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like, and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, apple podcast or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to for more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day to save 10 percent on any ppd courses enter the discount code principles podcast 10 at checkout If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogrammedesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.